A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. On the banks of the River Thames... Not far from the Houses of Parliament is New Scotland Yard, home, of course, to the Metropolitan Police. And in the basement of that building, where passing boat engines can be heard through the walls, is London's most inaccessible museum. It's called the Crime Museum. No members of the public are allowed in. It's strictly police only. And actually, Orson Welles, of course, made a radio series about this place way back in the 1950s, and he described it a bit like this. The museum is a repository of death, a repertorium of violence. Here in the grimy grimy stone structure on the Thames, which houses Scotland Yard, is a warehouse of homicide, where everyday objects, a phonograph record, a postcard, a colour photograph, a simple statuette, all are touched by murder. And tucked away in one corner of this very strange museum is a display about the birth of fingerprinting. And in it is a small Bengali almanac, a book, with a bloodstain on the cover. So how does an Indian almanac from the time of the British Raj end up as part of a display about the birth of fingerprinting inside this repository of death? Hello, friends, and welcome once again to Patented with me, your host, Dallas Campbell. This is the second episode in our little mini-series about the history of forensic science. Last week, we were in 13th century China, witnessing the birth of forensics, looking at a book called The Washing Away of Wrongs. This time, we've got an exclusive interview with the curator of the Crime Museum. But first, we're going to uncover the colonial roots of of fingerprinting. The invention, if you like, at the heart of this story is in fact a new filing system for fingerprinting. Now, a filing system might not sound very exciting, but in fact it led to a revolution in police identification. It was created in the 1890s by Sir Edward Henry while he was the Inspector General of the Bengal Police in colonial India. 
together with two Indian policemen, he developed what was called the Henry classification system. And this system made sense of the infinite variety of fingerprints, of whirls and loops and arches, by encoding each individual set of fingerprints into one of just over a thousand different subgroups. And at last, it became possible for the police to search for matches whenever a new set of fingerprints was found, whether they came from a suspect or were found indeed smeared in blood on the front cover of an almanac. But before we get to Sir Henry's mind-blowing filing system, we need to meet the people who first realised how uniquely useful fingerprints might be. One was the scientist Sir Francis Galton, now infamous as the founder of eugenics, and the other was Sir William Herschel, not the astronomer, but in fact an English official working in the Indian civil service in Bengal 30 years before Sir Henry arrived. And it was Herschel who was the first to become obsessed with the possibility of fingerprints as a means of identification and who set the whole chain of events in motion. To hear this story, the story of Herschel and Galton and Henry and others, I spoke to Chandak Sengupta, professor of history at Birkbeck University and author of Imprint of the Raj, How Fingerprinting Was Born in Colonial India. Chandak, lovely to have you on the show. Lovely to be here. Thanks for thinking of me. How could we not think of you when we come to talk about fingerprints? Ah, that's sweet. Let's structure this story. And it is a, it's a fascinating story. It's one of these things I, I knew nothing about until I started looking into it. And now, of course, I'm, I'm obsessed by it. But let's start with William Herschel. Let's go back to the beginning of India. What kind of year are we talking? 1850s? He was in India by the 1850s. Mm. But when we think about his use of fingerprints for identification, we're in the 1860s and 70s. Right. And I should say the name William Herschel is going to be familiar to astronomers. We're not talking about Herschel as in the famous astronomer William Herschel and Caroline Herschel. This is a, Are they related? Is oh, a... yes. Directly descended. William Herschel, the astronomer, had a very famous son, John Herschel, and... Our William James Herschel was the son of, of John. So we are talking about the astronomer's grandson. They are a high-achieving family. Oh, yes, they are. <laughs> For sure. Although our Herschel was sent out to India because he was supposed to be without any potential whatsoever to uh, <laughs> uphold the <laughs> right. family's reputation. Oh, well, there you go. Well, I, I have similar stories in my family of great-grandparents who were dispatched off to Australia and mm -hmm. India for, yeah. Nefarious, yeah. for nefarious reasons. Well, OK, so India, 1950s, 1850s, 1860s. Why was William Herschel there? Just a little bit of context. Yeah, well, this is a setting where you have a very tiny number of British administrators governing a country teeming with millions, many of whom are not literate, many of whom are not necessarily very eager to cooperate with their foreign rulers. Whatever be the reason, the British administrators of this period and also later developed this notion that 
we are ruling a people who are intrinsically dishonest and mendacious and they will try all kinds of tricks. They would think nothing of telling lies in court or impersonating somebody to get hold of somebody's pension, somebody's land. And essentially they saw duplicity everywhere and they lived in the fear of always being conned by the so-called natives. And so Herschel one day on a whim and he may have been interested in palmistry in the astrological sense as well. You know, I'm not sure about that. What we are sure about is one day he entered into some kind of a government contract with an Indian supplier. And he thought, hey, it'd be a good idea to put the fear of God into him by asking him for the print of his entire palm on that contract. That's all he thought, that it was just a way to intimidate uh, this contractor so that he wouldn't pull a fast one later. And then looking at that sort of ridge patterns, he gradually thought that, hey, you know, maybe we should ask just for the tips. He's still thinking of, you know, ways of scaring people into honesty, as it were. So that's how it began. But he's a very observant man. And he gradually notes that all these fingerprints that he is getting on contracts are seemingly very different. Each person's fingerprint seems to be almost unique. And he doesn't know it is unique but he suspects it might be. And then he turns into a complete obsessive about it. Whoever he met, he would collect a print from them. And like all cranky people, he built up an enormous collection, which he would later bring home with him to England. Eventually, he was sure enough that A, taking a print from a person would act as a kind of intimidation, and B, If his observations are right, then it might also be a unique signature. This is the early 1870s. He's now quite a senior figure. He's a magistrate in a a district in Bengal, and he has a lot of authority over his domain. So he introduces fingerprints in land registration, in prisons, and other places so that there can be no impersonation, no fiddling with contracts and so on. But then he retires and leaves India in the mid-1870s, late-1870s, and it falls out of use. And this is where the first part of the story really ends, uh, with a whimper, you might say. It's really interesting, though, that it's not. he wasn't just, in a way, he wasn't just using it for identification purposes. It's also a control technique. It's interesting as well, you said that, you know, there was this fear of people being ne'er-do-wells and injured. There is a kind of racist element. Well, there must have been initial reasons, I'm not going to romanticize my people. But yeah, there is, of course, in most things to do with colonialism, a racist element, which may be very strong or very, very light, but uh, Mm. some kind of racial difference in a value-laden sense is always there. I'm really interested in this this idea that he was sort of an obsessive about it, you know, and 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 a spotter of patterns, a bit like his great-grandfather, the other William Herschel, a great joiner of the dots, but in the sky rather than on handprints. And I'm interested that he was sort of, perhaps it came from palmistry, that idea of being able to predict 
who you are, your personality and, and, and the future from looking at the lines in your hands, which kind of nicely segues into our sort of act two of our story, our next person. So we've done Herschel. Herschel goes back to England. He's got this great catalogue of fingerprints, this is obsessive collection of, of, of fingerprints. Enter uh, Mr. Galton, of course, uh, Francis Galton, who, of course, when we think of Francis Galton, we think of eugenics. Indeed. So where did he come into the story? Well, Galton, of course, is one of these extraordinary Victorian polymaths who not only come up with the idea of eugenics, but he is also a compulsive inventor of various gadgets with which to sort of establish people's identity, people's descent. He's Charles Darwin's cousin, and he himself is a scientist of very diverse interests, but somehow he keeps coming back to physical identification of people and also understanding the nature of collective identity by combining individual identities. For example, his famous technique of composite photographs, that if you take photographs of, let's say, a dozen Jewish people and you combine them, then what emerges is, in Galton terms, the Jewish type. And Galton is, you know, frankly racist in our terms, so there's no way of sugarcoating Galton's terminology or aims and objectives. So in this two-pronged interest in identity, one, the sort of essential basis of collective identity, and number two, each individual's identity, he comes upon the idea of fingerprints and he contacts the editor of the scientific magazine Nature, who tells him that, well, you should talk to this guy. He worked in India, and I've heard that he is into this very topic. So Galton contacts Herschel, and there ensues a very warm, friendly correspondence. Herschel shares his collection with Galton, and armed with the huge set of samples from Herschel, Galton, who is much more of a trained scientist, uh, confirms that Herschel was indeed right to suspect that each person's fingerprint was unique. He even tries to evolve a scheme to classify fingerprints into definite types. And this is where we begin to approach the third chapter of our story. Edward Henry. Yeah. And Henry, as you know, is or was working in India at the time in a senior position in the Bengal police. And he was very interested in ways to identify each individual definitively so that you know that, okay, I've arrested this person A and this person A is the same person who pretended to be X two years ago and committed this other crime. So basically his, his the necessity of his invention, if you like, this new class of it was to simplify the identification method using fingerprints. So, so explain what he came up with. What was his breakthrough? Yeah. Well, first of all, he talks a lot with Galton on a visit to England, and Galton can't solve the problem for him. So mm. Henry goes back to India, and there are many stories about this that are very hard to authenticate. Apparently, he was out riding uh, in the countryside, and suddenly he has this 
Epiphany. There's another story that is traveling on a train when, again, there's an epiphanic moment. We like epiphanies. <laughs> In the history of invention, we always like to rely on, a, 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 on an epiphany as an explanation. Absolutely. He doesn't have any paper on anyone near, so he just scrolls it on his shirt cuff, which is, of course, appropriately starched and stiff in the classic Victorian way. So that's another story. What really happened is very difficult to find out, but it is certainly true that the solution emerged from Edward Henry's department in Bengal. The reason I say department is because he had or is very, very likely to have had considerable help from two very bright Indian junior police officers who worked with him on this. One, Azizul Haq, and the other, Hemchandra Bose. We don't know much about these two people, although there's a lot of speculative material around. If you look on the internet, you'll find many ultra-nationalistic claims surrounding these people. And whilst I would love to give them their dues, as a historian, I do need some evidence. I'd love my people to get some praise for a change. <laughs> but it's professionally very difficult for me to subscribe to nationalistic myths that can't be established with evidence. We tend to, uh, in, 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 the, in the service of of national identity. We tend to forget about uh, evidence and we tend to go for the easy stories. <laughs> but explain explain a little bit about, so we've got our three characters now, explain a little bit about what they did. They're putting together a system which would collate this new bit of scientific evidence, the individuality of the fingerprint. How do we find these people? So what was the, what was the solution? Well, first of all, they sort of simplify the sample. Galton had established that most people's fingerprints fall into three broad types, loops, whorls, or arches. These are the shapes of the ridges. These are the shapes of the ridges, the configurations. The Henry system began by reducing the number of these categories to just two, and then going deeper into the combination of patterns, they found this magic figure that there is only 1,029 or something like that possibilities of fingerprint configurations. And that led to a mathematical formula, which I confess I've never quite understood. Simply, there are kind of numbers attributed to the different shapes of the fingerprint. So, and, and, and also what kind of, which finger it comes from. Yeah, yeah, it's a very mathematical. But it leads to this system of classifying fingerprints uh, according to this magic formula and putting the fingerprint cards in different pigeonholes. And there are those 1,092 or whatever the figure is, pigeonholes. Just like a library, just, just like a like library. A library. You'd, go through, you'd go through cards in order to find the book and there's the shelf and there's the row, etc. So suddenly we've got a, we now have a, a system. So what would, the, what would the police do? Well, what they would do is, of course, first of all, send the suspect's prints to the Central Fingerprint Bureau with its, with its pigeonholes. And then mm. if a match is found, that would lead them to whatever records they have about the suspect's previous crimes. And then they would say, we have nailed a repeat offender. Or, you know, the other kind of situation, the police find a bloody print of finger at a crime scene. And they 
take a careful impression of that. Again, they go to their 1092 pigeonholes and try to match that particular print. If they find a match, they've got the murderer, or at least they can claim they have. So we've got rigorous science in that we now know that fingerprints are unique. We have a very clever classification system, which means we can categorise fingerprints and we can and a retrieval system. That's the thing that makes fingerprints as a, as a forensic tool work. Otherwise, it's completely useless. It's, it's completely useless, except in the Herschelian way of scaring the person, but otherwise useless. And there we go. It's the, it's the sort of foundations of, sort of modern forensic science, I think, and, and a good place to pause, I think. Chandak, thanks very much for sort of just telling us the story. Next time anyone, any of our listeners have to give their fingerprints at an immigration booth, they can thank William Herschel, Francis Galton, Edward Henry, Chandra Bose, Azazul Haq, perhaps. Although, who did what gets sort of lost in the telling of the story. But it is a brilliant story. It's one of those stories that I had, I had zero knowledge about. And then suddenly we're whisked off to India in the days of the Raj. And we meet all these, all these amazing characters. And uh, there's a pic, when I was researching this story, there is a picture of uh, William Herschel. I think the very, very first contract. And there is a palm print on a piece of paper by one of his workers. And that, that we can... If you like, we can call that ground zero fingerprints. But a few years ago, I was filming in Egypt and I was filming in the desert and we were in this cave and it was covered in prehistoric or, you know, ancient handprints. And that idea of the handprint as a making one's mark on something, to be remembered, to be identified, seems to stretch back to the beginnings of time. I just remember seeing these handprints on this cave wall, which were really quite profound, given they were, you know, tens of thousands of years old. Yeah, a physical mark. physical mark. And yet somehow we go from that to the fact that we can go to the granular detail of the the ridges of the fingerprint actually being able to identify a human and the fact that we can retrieve these and we can categorise these, I think is an incredible story. It's It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been an absolute joy. After Sir Henry's classification system had been born, the next challenge was to convince judges, politicians, and in short, the state, that all this worked. The fingerprint evidence really was enough to convict someone of the most serious crimes. To find out how this happened, we need to say goodbye to Bengal and head to Victorian England, where the police were growing weary of the troubles they had telling who was who, especially when it came to spotting repeat offenders. They were sending policemen to jail to look for familiar faces and used a French identification system based on delicate measurements of the body. But really, all a criminal had to do to outsmart them was to give a false name. So when they heard about Henry's classification system using fingerprints, they decided to take the plunge. After the break, we'll hear how Sir Edward Henry and his system transformed policing and we'll take you inside that warehouse of homicide. The Crime Museum. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how code breakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history 
that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race, I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. In 1901, Sir Edward Henry was called back to Britain to become the Assistant Commissioner of the London Metropolitan Police. He went on to become Commissioner, and under his leadership, the Met pioneered fingerprints in fighting crime, culminating in the groundbreaking case of the Stratton Brothers, where fingerprinting itself would go on trial. And so, at last, it is time to visit that repository of death, the Crime Museum, and speak to its curator, Paul Bickley, about the objects they have that chart Sir Edward Henry's forensic fingerprinting crusade. Ah, I'm so excited to be with Paul Bickley. Paul, just just for our listeners, explain where you are. You sound like you're in a basement because it's a bit echoey. You're, but you're in the basement of New Scotland Yard. New Scotland Yard. Oh, it just sounds so. It sounds so exciting. The Crime Museum. The Crime Museum is not a museum in a normal sense of a museum. It is not. It, <laughs> it is not a public museum. Wait, how can you have? A, how can you have a museum and not make it a public museum? The whole point of a museum is that. We're meant to be able to go and go to the gift shop afterwards. And <laughs> If only we had a gift shop, yeah. Uh, the Crime Museum is a training resource. We use it for training young officers. Uh, we have exhibits from all the famous cases over the years, so they can come to the museum, learn from the experiences of others, see how the cases were solved. It's a fantastic museum, and I get lots of inquiries from the public. One of the busiest things I have to do is keep saying to people, sorry, it is not open to the public. Well, listen, we, have, we feel very, very honoured that you talked to us today. Just for our listeners as well, just explain a little bit about who you are and, and how you came to be the... What Are you the curator of the Crime Museum? I'm the curator of the Crime Museum. The curator is invariably a retired police officer. So I am a retired police officer. I was a police officer for 31 years. Loved every minute of it. I was in uniform. I worked on the National Crime Squad, the Regional Crime Squad, the Flying Squad... Uh, time working on surveillance wing as well so a very varied career but so when I first joined the job this was pre-DNA pre-CCTV pre a lot of the forensic techniques we get today so fingerprints 
were the the major tool we had for solving crimes back in the 1980s. We're going to talk about fingerprints in a moment. I just want to just to sort of whet our listeners' appetite in terms of in terms of what you have in the museum. If if by chance, let's say you invited me to come down to the museum one day, <laughs> uh, what exciting things would I see? Because it's been there for a while, the Crime Museum. I think it was called the Black Museum in the 18. 18- 60s or 1870s I was doing a little bit of research what kind of crazy exciting objet does what would I would I see the crime museum was set up in 1875 at that time there was a change of legislation uh, so we had the prisoners property act which meant we could seize and retain property from criminals which is the first time we could do that so obviously we needed a property store uh, a man called inspector neem who was in charge of the property store he had all this probably sitting on shelves and he thought, this is a total waste. I've got all these items, lovely items sitting on shelves. So he decided he was going to lay it out on tables and get other officers to come and see what they should be looking out for. So that's where the museum starts. Uh, so it was about learning from the experiences of others. We got exhibits from a very famous burglar from that time, a man called Charlie Peace. Anyone who's really interested in police history would know that. We've got exhibits from the Great Train Robbery, John Reginald Christie, the Acid Bath Murderer, Dr. Crippen, all the, the very famous cases you can think of. The classics. Classic case. If it involved the Metropolitan Police, if it involved Scotland Yard detectives, chances are we've got it in the museum. And we still collect exhibits today because um, it is important that we collect exhibits now for the future. Uh, I'm wondering, what you, do you have a kind of prize exhibit? If we went to the Louvre Gallery in Paris, it would be the Mona Lisa. It would be the Rosetta Stone, perhaps, in the British Museum. I'm just wondering, in the, the Crime Museum, what's the thing that everyone kind of wants to look at? People often ask me what my favourite exhibit is. We've got the pellet from the Georgie Markov murder, 1978. It is a very tiny pellet. Uh, and he was... Is that the poisoning one? That's the one, yeah. He was jabbed in the back of a leg by a man with an umbrella on Waterloo Bridge with rising. That's, yeah, that's right, correct. We've got exhibits from the Dennis Nielsen, the serial killer, Dennis Nielsen, a lot of people come to look at that. I mean, a fantastic investigation and great work by the chief inspector in that case by getting as much information as he did out of Dennis Nielsen because without Nielsen telling us exactly what he did, we probably would never have known the half of it because, again, this was pre-DNA. We've got lots of fine, fine exhibits. It's very difficult to pinpoint one as being my favourite. Yeah, my problem is it's too interesting and, and I can feel Freddie and Charlotte, my producers, saying get on with it Downs for God's sake oh just listeners Paul's just moving his camera around so I can have a little secret look at the museum and it's all kinds of oh all kinds of amazing good stuff okay we're going to get on we're going to get on to fingerprints because that's why we're here and basically we're going to you know we'll be talking about Edward Henry who is responsible for well a lot of fingerprint technology I suppose back in the day in terms of categorizing fingerprints and and we've talked a little bit about Edward Henry already tell us about the case of the bloody almanac this is a it's got a great title the bloody almanac and it takes us back it takes us back to India exhibit one the bloody almanac it is a fantastic story actually yeah in 1897 there was a murder in 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 Bengal in India Uh, a tea garden manager was murdered his Premises were robbed and ransacked, left behind. An almanac was left behind. And it had a bloody smudge mark on it. An almanac being just a kind of... It's a little book, like a little diary, yeah. But it's got this bloody smudge mark on the front of it. Today's date, again, we take looking at fingerprints for granted. But at that time, they weren't even considering that. So they identified some suspects. These suspects were questioned, eliminated. So Edward Henry saw the book saw the smudge mark, he checked it with a magnifying glass and saw it was a thumbprint. 
So this was groundbreaking detective work. He was now looking at things that hadn't really been considered. Another suspect who became identified was a man called Kanguli Sharam. Now, Kanguli had been working for the tea garden manager and put in prison for stealing from that the very same person. But he'd been released a month before the murder. And he'd always sworn that he would get revenge. So he became a suspect. Well, if you're in prison at that time in India, they would take your fingerprints before you were released. So we knew his fingerprints were on file. We had the one from the almanac checked against his. It proved they were one and the same. He was put on trial for the murder and the, the judge, he said it wouldn't be right for someone to be found guilty of murder just because of a smudge mark on a book. He didn't believe in the fingerprints to that extent. So he found him not guilty of the murder. But the very same judge said, the fingerprint on the book was clearly overwhelming evidence that he was responsible for the theft, so he was put into prison. So the almanac, um, I don't know, it suddenly appeared in Scotland Yard a few years ago. So we've got no real provenance of where it came from, how it came to be in Scotland Yard. And so, but you're, you're convinced it's the one, that's the actual one. Well, that's the thing. I was given the book and I'm convinced it's the one because it's from the same era, it's the same type, it, everything is, and it's got this bloody smudge mark on the front. But... I needed to set about making sure it was really the same one. So ideally, what I needed was Kanguli Sharan's thumbprint so our fingerprint lab could compare against the one on the book. Well, it's 125 years ago. It's not going to be in our records. Um, so I did some research, and I was in luck. So Edward Henry wrote a book in 1901 called The Use and Classification of Fingerprints. In that book, he talks about this incident. And in the chapter when he's talking about the incident, he has a picture of the fingerprint found on the cover. He also has a fingerprint of Kanguli Sharan's fingerprint, and he shows how they, they're similar. So I took the book along with the almanac and I took it to our fingerprint lab. And I said, can you compare the mark on the cover with that in the Sir Edward Henry's book? Well, it is a real challenge because it's now 125 years old. Those marks have faded greatly. So what they did is they used modern lighting techniques to try and illuminate the fingerprints. Um, a lot of it had faded beyond even their, their technology to bring it up, but they could say there was nothing there that would contradict it being the same, no marks, because there was not a loop when there should have been a whirl or anything like that. And the fact it's in the same position on the same book, we feel that is that same book. So we now have that, that book from that murder in our museum. It's a great story because it's, it, you know, you, you've sort of caught the killer twice, as it were, <laughs> over a sort of 100 yeah. years. The, the very first fingerprint analysis and then 100 years or whatever, however long it was later, you've sort of done it again using modern techniques. It's a really interesting story. Well, that gets us neatly onto Exhibit 2 is about the register of all the early fingerprint cases from, from Scotland Yard. Can you tell us about that and what the very, the very first case. Yeah, I have it in front of me actually. Yeah, Number one uh, relates to a burglary that occurred in Denmark Hill in Camberwell, South East London. At the burglary scene, the investigating officer noticed what he thought was a thumbprint at the point of entry. So he called a man called Sergeant Charles Collins to the crime scene from the fingerprint branch and he examined it, photographed the fingerprint. So the sergeant, he took the fingerprint back to Scotland Yard compared it against those on the database. Very unfortunately for a man called Harry Jackson, 
his fingerprints were on the database. It identified <laughs> him as being responsible. When he was arrested, he was found to have possession property from the burglary and other burglaries. So overwhelming evidence, he was taken to court and got sentenced to seven years in prison. It, presumably if his fingerprints were on file, he should have worn gloves. What was he thinking? Well, see, before, like I was saying earlier on, we hadn't used fingerprints as an investigative tool before. Right. And like I was yeah. saying in the early, it was a method of making sure people couldn't give false identities. This was groundbreaking. Uh, well, let's, let's, so there's number one. At least he kind of did his seven years going, well, at least I was the first person to get, <laughs> to get I'm sure he was very pleased to be number <laughs> one, yeah. Let me go, I want to just, while you've got the book there, I want to go down to number 16, the Stratton brothers. The Stratton brothers is probably the most famous of all cases to do with fingerprints because it was the first murder solved using fingerprints. Burglary was one thing, but to have it accepted in relation to a murder, as I mentioned, with the Indian court, the judge there would accept it for the burglary, but wouldn't accept it for the murder. Well, um, 1905, it was actually March 1905, we had our first uh, crime that was solved using fingerprints. The Stratton brothers, Alfred and Albert, they lived in Deptford, South London. They believed a man called Thomas Farrow kept a lot of money in his shop at 34 Deptford High Street. Thomas and his wife Anne, both in their late 60s, lived above the shop. And on the 27th of March, at about 7.15, Thomas Farrell was seen outside the shop. His face was covered in blood. Looked a bit dazed, but he went back into the shop and locked it. That was the last time he was ever seen alive. 8.30 in the morning, his young assistant, a young lad called William Jones, turns up to give him a help. And he was very surprised to find the shop locked because Thomas was a very professional man. He would always be up early to supply paints to decorators who needed the stuff on the way to work. So William, quite rightly, was very worried. He got assistance and they forced their way into the shop. Inside, they found a horrific scene. Thomas Farrow, he'd been battered to death. Upstairs, they found his wife. She'd also been battered to death. Oh, battered, sorry. She wasn't dead at that stage. She was unconscious. She was rushed to hospital. But sadly, she died a few days later. So this was a brutal double murder, front page news. And the officers who turned up to investigate, they deduced that Thomas had been woken by people knocking at his door. So he'd come down to open the door. He'd been murdered and then the place had been ransacked. Amongst the items they found at the crime scene were some very crude looking masks. Basically, they're stockings that had been cut up with eye holes in. Mm. And to hold them in place, there's bits of string tied around the back. Which is exhibit number three. I think you have those stockings in the museum, don't you? We got those, yeah, sorry, we got those within in the museum. They were in the crime scene. They'd been left behind in the crime scene. And also, more importantly, there was a cash box. The cash box had been forced open. No money in the cash box, but there was a thumbprint on the cash box. So the investigating officer, a man called Chief Inspector Fox, he obviously felt that the suspects were local villains, local Deptford villains, because they'd worn a mask. If they didn't fear recognition, why would they have these crude-looking masks? So all the local villains in Deptford were arrested, interviewed, fingerprints checked, alibis checked, because at this time there wasn't CCTV everywhere. We are working just on descriptions. Uh, and all the local villains could be eliminated, apart from the Stratton brothers who had gone missing. About a week later, they were arrested, questioned, and their fingerprints taken. The thumbprint found in the cash box was found to belong to Alfred Stratton. Hmm. So they were charged, taken to the old way. And at court, there was other evidence, but the other evidence was pretty weak. 
The only real evidence we had was the fingerprints. So if defence could discredit fingerprint evidence, the Strattons could get away with murder. So they did call some very high-profile people along, some experts to give evidence to try and discredit fingerprints. But their experts were no match for Charles Collins, who by this time had been made up to an inspector. Mm-hmm. He went on to the Old Bailey. He explained all about fingerprints. He took with him a picture of the thumbprint found in the cash box. He took a picture of Alfred Stratton's thumbprint, and he could show the similarities between the two fingerprints. And he actually fingerprinted some of the jury as well to show them how the system worked and how he could identify everyone from their fingerprints. They were found guilty, they were sentenced to death, they were executed. And that's the very first conviction for murder using fingerprints. And obviously after that, it gets readily accepted in criminal trials today. That's really interesting. So, I mean, obviously the the, the Stratton brothers tried tried for murder, but it's also kind of, am I right in thinking this was fingerprints on trial you know, you've got to convince a jury who probably didn't know anything about fingerprints and convince the judge and th- that this is absolutely conclusive evidence. Exactly that. Yeah, if fingerprints had been discredited at that time, who would have believed it in future trials? Mm. So, as you're quite right, this was fingerprints on trial. The defence, they brought along uh, very professional, profound experts trying to discredit the evidence. But Inspector Collins, Charles Collins... Mm. Very professional in what he did. He managed to prove and show there was no problem with the fingerprint system. Because, yeah, I mean, it's today's day, everyone readily accepts. They sit on the telly all the time. But imagine being that very first jury when you're hearing for the first time and the judge hearing for the first time. And if you believe that what these people are saying about fingerprints, you know the two defendants are going to be sentenced to death because it relates to murder. The sentence for murder is death. So you have to be really convinced there's no room for error because it is going to result in someone being executed. Yeah. Wow. I mean, there's there's a little corner of your museum I know that's dedicated to Sir Edward Henry. The fact that you've got a little corner of your museum is testament just to how fundamental fingerprinting was to put to modern policing. And just in your experience, where does, you know, how important was and is fingerprinting? I mean, obviously you still do it, so... And we still use fingerprinting for all kinds of reasons, but... Fingerprint today is still... We still catch criminals using fingerprints today. And a lot of the high-profile cases, if you remember the great train robbery, some very professional robbers who thought they were going to be very clever, wear gloves. We even found fingerprints at Leverslade Farm in relation to the great train robbery, which helped with the conviction. There's there's many cases in this museum solved using fingerprints. And say, and it's it's people still get caught today as much as they try and That's consider really, fingerprints. Burglars beware! Hey, Paul, yeah. listen, thank you so much for giving us a patented exclusive. It's been really, really interesting. I'm absolutely fascinated by your job. And I so <laughs> when I've been reading about the museum, I'm like, oh my god, that's so interesting. Um, I think you've got an amazing job, and it's an amazing bit of history. And I think the Edward Henry story in fingerprinting, I just think it's fantastic. So I just want to say a huge thank you. Well, listen, Paul, enjoy life in your basement. I Thank hope they let much. you out sometimes for a bit of fresh air and a bit of bit of sunshine. Sometimes it's nice been... to see daylight. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry I can't invite you around to see it. That's okay. I'll figure out a way somehow. I'm going to figure a way of breaking in. And <laughs> It's been great chatting. Great to speak to you. Thank you very much. Okay, that is it. You are now up to speed on fingerprinting. That is the story of how fingerprinting came to be. So next time you see detectives on TV dusting for prints, think of Herschel. And Galton and Henry and Hem Chandra Bose and Azul Huck. 
Our mini-series on forensics will continue next week as we head to 1920s America and the invention of that staple of crime dramas, the lie detector. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.